Welcome to the Sunday weekly broadcast of Retail Politics. My name is Jerry Shields, your host, and today we are going to talk about the politics of fake news. Retail politics in the past was defined as candidates trying to reach voters individually by shaking hands outside supermarkets, kissing babies, uh, you know, making calls, knocking on doors. But we're going to read define that term today, uh, one don't download at a time for uh, the times that we're in and trying to give you the information you need to make the best decisions about your government. And today I am very excited to introduce to you Mr. Howard Schneider, who is the founding dean of the Stony Brook University School of Journalism on Long Island, New York, and now executive director of the News Literacy Institute at Stony Brook. Welcome, Howard. Good to be here, Jerry. Yes, uh, you know, uh, you and I have one, we have never met, but we have one man in common uh, named Bob Green. So Bob was one of the legendary um, journal- investigative journalists of the last tw- half of the 20th century. And I knew Bob through investigative reporters and editors. You were at Newsday with him, the, the tabloid newspaper in Long Island. And um, I, I, he was a great guy. And I used to go to all his sessions because not only did he have great tips but he was very colorful big guy you know big personality and he said one thing that i never forgot he and 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 i don't think he invented it but i think it was something that he delivered best because he had that you know big voice and he said you know what opinion writers are they're the people that ride down after the battle and shoot the wounded <laughs> that sounds like bob uh, he i was love an amazing, that amazing guy amazing guy but yeah. it was 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 the ultimate reporter believed in the power of reporting to make a difference yeah, he really did. So let's get to it. I uh, watched Kamala Harris make her uh, presidential entry speech um, and was very fascinated when she said that she thought Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016 on four words, make America great again. And she said that the Democrats had to come up with something this time around to combat it. But I, I thought about it in terms of the media, and I think Trump did the same thing with two words to neutralize the American press, and that was fake news. So on your website, you define fake news as being false information, propaganda, rumors, advertising that masquerades as news. Uh, Critics of Trump say he uses it every time he doesn't like something that's written about him or his administration. But what's fascinating here is in 2007, that's when Stony Brook and you started the news literacy program at, at the university. Tell me a little bit of how it's started and, uh, you know, what it does. Yeah, I'm going to do that, Jerry. I just want to make one comment about what you said about uh, Trump undermining the press uh, and confidence in the press. It's just important to know that if you look back between 2003 and 2016, when he was elected, uh, confidence in the press and its trustworthiness had already plummeted. It had gone from 54% in 2003 down to 32% in 2016. So he really exploited, Mm -hmm. exploited uh, what was already um, going on. He accelerated that and exploited it. 
And, and I should have qualified too that it really was more his base that he neutralized the press with. That's true. And the other thing that is important to point out is that that number, it's right now about 33%, about a third of Americans feel the press is delivering fair and accurate reporting most of the time. That number is kind of skewed by political party. So about 54% of, of Democrats believe that the press is trustworthy. Um, about 40% of independents believe it's trustworthy, but only somewhere between 10 and 25% of Republicans. So that number really is defined a lot by partisanship. And certainly Trump's partisans um, uh, are people who have really, uh, you know, driven the idea that you can't trust the press and bought into it. Yes, yes. So 2007, yeah, Stony Brook University, you were uh, had a great career as the editor of Newsday, as a reporter there. And um, amazingly, uh, your paper won eight Pulitzer Prizes under your direction. And the Pulitzer Prize is kind of the Academy Award of Journalism. And uh, so um, from 2007 on, though, you've been you're really involved in what we call news literacy. Tell us about it. So when I arrive at Stony Brook, in 2006 and 7, um, I come at the behest of the president to start the newest journalism school in the country. I have no idea um, what news literacy is. The, the term has not even been coined or invented yet. And I begin teaching some of these undergraduates, not journalism majors, but students from all over the university. We don't have a journalism program yet. I'm teaching them a course on the ethics and values of the American press. And I discover back then, this is 2006, 2007, that they are overwhelmed and bewildered about what news they can rely on and what news they can't. And so they would ask me, is Michael Moore a journalist? Is Oprah Winfrey a journalist? When I go on YouTube and I see clips of the war in Iraq, is, is Professor, is that journalism? So when I went back to the president of the university, I said, it is no longer sufficient for journalism schools in the United States just to train the journalists. If we don't prepare the audience for the transformative changes that are coming, it won't make a difference how well the press performs. If the audience cannot identify quality journalism and recognize it in this stew of information and misinformation, then there's really no future for the American press. So in that period, 2007, we started the first undergraduate course in the United States called News Literacy, designed to teach students how to judge the reliability of the news and information they get from whatever source. And of course, over time, the course has evolved and we spend a lot more time on news that comes from social media and the internet. Yeah. So um, one of the examples I saw, and I think it was in a story that uh, about you and your program, was there was a Facebook post that went out during the last election. It said uh, Pope, the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump for the election, and I think it went out to over 800,000 Facebook followers. And uh, when they finally did correct it, I think about 30,000 got the correction. And that it, that's an example. And, and we all know that the Pope um, supported Hillary. And I'm only kidding. That's how this stuff starts. That's how this stuff starts. But tell me, is that that's an example? But tell me some of the wild examples that you've seen over the years. Well, let me tell you that that example speaks volumes about how information travels. Now, the ecosystem. 
So if the Pope, uh, if there's a fake tweet from allegedly the Pope endorsing Trump and it is retweeted 868,000 times and then the, the Vatican says, oh, my God, or whatever the Vatican says, that's not real. We don't endorse anybody. And they put out a correction and it only reaches 30,000 people. Who's going to win this war, Jerry? Yes. Who's going to win the war on the yes. Internet between yes. fake and real information? That's right. MIT has done a study recently that actually quantified on Twitter uh, how fast false information travels compared to real information, confirmed wow. information. And fake stuff travels seven times faster. Oh, my seven God. times faster. Mm. Mm. So mm. if you want to know about some outrageous examples of fake news, you can find them almost every day, unfortunately. <laughs> now, you don't have to look very far, it, but yeah. the example in 2016 of those fake news reports that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic elite were running a child pedophilia ring out right. of the basement of a right. pizzeria right. in Washington. Right. And it. that prompted, that actually prompted someone who read that post to take an assault ri rifle and go into that pizzeria and go into a closet and actually fire his gun mm. to try to free these children when the whole mm -hmm. thing was fabricated. Mm -hmm. That's just one outrageous example of the kinds of conspiracy theories that mm -hmm. are now alive in America and unfortunately are being exploited by a lot of bad actors. So how do we um, stop from falling for fake news? What is it that you teach people to prevent them from uh, falling for such uh, misinformation? There are a couple of very basic principles that will help people a great deal. First, slow down. I know that sounds very simple, but everything that we're doing now is being driven by speed. And so the news cycle is not going to slow down, but we can slow down about the way we make decisions about information. Acting quickly often leads to problems. That's one. Interrogate rather than consume information. Number two, what does that mean? It means always ask two or three basic questions about anything that you read or watch. Where is this coming from? Who's giving me this information? What do I know about this person or this news organization? Two, what's the evidence, the evidence to support the main points of this particular story? Is there evidence or is there only opinion and assertion in here? Mm -hmm. And three, what do other outlets say about this? Can I find this news account elsewhere? Has it been confirmed? So that means that we need to learn how to read laterally, Jerry. Mm -hmm. Most of us read vertically. We watch a video from beginning to end. We read a story from beginning to end. And even if we ask questions, that's not enough. We need to leave the video. We need to leave the story, check it out elsewhere, and come back. That's called lateral reading. That helps you interrogate. Use the power of the internet to correct some of the real problems of the internet. So that's one big idea. The second big idea is the notion of not outsourcing your judgment. Don't allow your judgment to be influenced by technology and friends. We all take shortcuts. We go on Google and we make an assumption that if we search for news, the top items are reliable. They're not. We make the assumption that if something's retweeted a great many times, it's true. It's not. We make the assumption if something's trending on YouTube, 
that must be real and true and reliable. It's not. So we need to understand not to outsource our judgment. And we certainly need to be careful about outsourcing our judgment to friends. Mm -hmm. Studies have shown that many Americans trust the sender of the information Mm -hmm. more than the source. So Jerry, if I, you know, Jerry, I I get an email from you this Mm -hmm. afternoon Mm -hmm. and you send me something and I know you and I respect you as a journalist. I'm going to basically say, wow, I'm going to pass this on. Right. Over half Americans don't even open up the link to see Mm. where it's coming from. Mm. So Mm. these are things, they're simple things we can do to cut down on the spread of misinformation. And much of what's spread is not spread by Russian trolls and malevolent (laughs) malevolent people. It's you and me. It's ordinary people who are lazy and sloppy Mm -hmm. and who basically need to slow down and take time and do some basic things. We are the solution. We are the solution to this problem, not the technology companies and not the journalists. Well, that's the old saying, right? We've met the enemy and the enemy is us. Absolutely. And we got to learn how to do this. It doesn't come naturally, which is why at Stony Brook, we are a great believer in in educational intervention, right. beginning really early, Jerry. I think mm-hmm. it's got to start at 11 mm-hmm. when students get their first smartphones. You know, right. 52% of American kids at 11 have a smartphone, wow. 69% by the age of 12. Wow. It's like putting kids behind a car, you know, without yeah. a driver's license. We need to start then to give them these kind of skills and concepts. That's kind of fascinating to say that because the debate the other day, our last, um, the other day with uh, Mike Pence and Kamala Harris, there was a brilliant final question um, in that debate. And it was a Utah eighth grader who submitted it, Brecklin Brown. And she denounced the viciousness of the bickering, you know, among our political leaders. And if they can't get along, how can we get along? But during the answer, Pence said, um, you know, I hope you have a life in public service, Brecklin, something like that. But he said, I start reading the news when I was in eighth grade. So that was very fascinating to me because when he was in eighth grade, we had newspapers. It was pretty direct, uh, limited. She's going to be bombarded with all these things you're talking about. And um, I have a a very dear friend and former colleague in Northport High School, up where you are, Janice Schechter. And she told me that um, the kids in her class kind of go into the class not really knowing what it is, but really appreciating um, that they get this information. What kind of reaction have you seen from you know the institute with students well we we have for a long time jerry we focused almost exclusively on undergraduates mm-hmm. and we taught over eleven thousand students across all disciplines this course we exported the course to 22 other colleges it's now being taught in part in 15 other countries and um at the university level there have actually been some studies that have found that the course really makes a difference that When they went back a year later, they found students who took this course had the ability to critically evaluate news and separate it from material that was not news. Mm -hmm. Uh, It looked like news, but it was really advertising or propaganda or infotainment. Mm -hmm. Uh, They found out the students were more engaged in the news Mm -hmm. uh, and they went to more news sites. And that Mm -hmm. was very encouraging, the idea that it was sticky, that it stayed with them for a year. Uh, So that was terrific. About 
Two years ago, we became more and more convinced, as I noted to you, that was too late. It's too mm-hmm. late to start at college. Mm-hmm. We're still doing it. Mm-hmm. So the Institute at uh, the Institute for News Literacy Education, as part of our center, began to partner with middle schools and high schools, like Janice Schachter's high school. One of our first schools was a school in Coney Island, mm-hmm. um, IS-303, in the middle of Coney Island, mm-hmm. uh, right next to the Trump, uh, a Trump apartment complex, in fact. <laughs> and every student in this school... Mm-hmm. takes one hour of news literacy instruction every week for three years as part of their required English language curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I visit this school. They have a room called the news literacy classroom mm-hmm. where they have video screens and newspapers and magazines. And these students as young as 10 and 11 are beginning to do what you're saying. They're wading into this stew of information. And the first thing they do, the very first thing is learn something called know your neighborhood. Mm. You need a GPS, Jerry. So it starts with knowing where you are in this confusing, am I in the journalism neighborhood? Am I in the advertising neighborhood? By the way, am I in the sponsored content neighborhood? Am I in the propaganda neighborhood? Am I in the unfiltered neighborhood of information that has not been verified all over the internet? Am I in the entertainment neighborhood? So the first thing we do is we help them to develop a GPS so at least they know where they are. It doesn't mean all their journalism is going to be perfect or reliable, but at least they can find it. But what and that's the GPS in their mind you're talking that's about. That's correct. Right? That's exactly right. And and it's interesting because I believe you and and few other people went to the state board of regents in New York to pitch this as an actual required class, like a social studies or an English or a math. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, what I did was I went to the board of regents and I did a presentation in New York, and I say let's be the first state in the in the country mm-hmm. to get out ahead of this. This is yeah. a life skill. For the 21st century, this is not an elective. This is not an add-on. This is a core requirement for citizenship in the 20. How are we going to have intelligent discussions about the future of this country if we don't have an informed citizenry? And we know that many adults at this point are so basically corrupted by all of the toxic information they have already received. They've had no training. Mm-hmm. They're they're deeply partisan. Mm-hmm. Um, they only believe what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. Let's at least start with another generation and get them ready. So yeah. we propose that this be required at some level in K through 12 mm-hmm. and it be required as a graduation requirement. So New York State is rethinking its graduation requirements for its high school students. And I would love to see this kind of education part of that requirement. I would also like to see every single future teacher who is certified in New York have to take coursework in news literacy, every subject, every grade, because I think the teachers... And the, and the parents need this as, as much as the students need it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a good segue because I was reading recently that Joan London, who is now at Lehigh University, um, has joined a group called MediaWise, and their attempt is to teach seniors news literacy because they're finding that seniors, this is the first generation of seniors who know how to use computers, uh, they're a little trigger happy, they see something, they get excited, they send it to their friend and they hit that send button. Is that also a problem? Well, you know, it's interesting. There have been two contradictory studies. There was a recent study that found, in fact, that seniors were more likely to spread misinformation than younger people, which may be counterintuitive. Right. But there was also a more recent study specifically about COVID and about 11 conspiracy theories surrounding COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it found that, in fact, seniors were less less likely to spread conspiracy theories about COVID. And I think because that matters so much to them, mm-hmm. they become much more careful. They're, they're wow. far less casual in very what they do. Very, very and, and I think that that's really the key. But let me say that emotion is not our friend. Mm-hmm. Speed is not our friend. Emotion is not our friend. Mm-hmm. When we get emotional about information that we see and read and watch, and we immediately want to pass it on to people that we know, We've got to slow down because emotion, acting on emotion is not the way that we're going to solve this problem because emotion leads us down the path of giving people information that we think they want to know or we already want to believe. And that's hard. It's very hard, but we've got to get people to understand that. That's a very interesting point because they always say if you write an angry email, let it sit for a day before you send it, you know. Absolutely. And uh, it sounds like almost the same thing with with news. Um, How do you stop your parents? I mean, you got your parents or your grandparents and you want to teach them not to do this and, and to be more careful. How do you do that as a son or daughter or granddaughter? Well, I think I think first you have to educate them. Uh, I don't think you attack them because in many cases they're not doing this maliciously or intentionally. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. don't know better. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we need to do is basically say to them, listen, grandpa, grandma, um, you know, I'm learning something in school I think would be very interesting to you. Or grandma, you sent me an email recently and you mm-hmm. sent it from whitehouse.org. Mm-hmm. Did you know that whitehouse.org is not a real site because mm-hmm. org means nothing, grandma, mm-hmm. and dot com means nothing? Mm-hmm. Those are not... URLs that in any way are filtered. Mm. And one of the things we're doing with the school districts we partner with, Jerry, on Long Island Mm -hmm. and in New York City, Mm -hmm. we are having them do complimentary programs for parents Mm. because we think that's the way that parents are going to get involved. And I think most parents want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So I think if if the students can come home and kind of share this with them or Mm -hmm. call them out or children can say to their parents when they get an email that's way off, you know, you can't spread this. Here's why. I think the first step is when you see something that your parents are doing, you got to say something. Mm -hmm. Um, And -hmm. I think all of us have to do that. When I get a bad email from somebody and they say, pass it on, and it's from a fake site and they mean, well, I need to send it back to everybody and say, hey, listen, this is, this is garbage. This is not real. If you only click two more times to check it out, you'd realize it's fake. Right. And, you know, you've got to hope that begins to stick. Well, it's interesting. You say, see something, say something. That's the same term we use to fight terrorism. So that's, yeah. that's an idea You're absolutely, how serious this, this, this is. is a, this is a form of terrorism when you yeah. think about it. It's yeah. a form of, you know, information terrorism. Um, yes. Yes. And, and we've got to stop it. All of us got to work at this, starting in the schools. But I think the more we can educate ourselves through libraries, through senior groups, 
through good government groups. Um, I think this is the kind of education we're not prepared for this. Right. This this is we're in the middle, Jerry, of the the greatest revolution in communication in five hundred years. Right. And we haven't caught up with it. We haven't prepared our children or ourselves. It is. It's happening very fast. And I was going to answer you that. I mean, people are just being bombarded by things. I mean, you can, it's, it's interesting. There's a new um, uh, website, medium.com that lets people write for it. And I get on there every day just to see what's going on. And every single story has the seven reasons that this, the 12 reasons you should do this. And, the t- and, and it's all that bullet stuff that people, and right. I do it. I go through and I just look at the bullets and move on. And um, we are being bombarded with that kind of information. And it's such an important issue coming up to this election on November 3rd, which is colossal. I think you and I have been around for a good time. And uh, we uh, we I haven't seen an election this important since um, since I was born in 61. And um, how, you know, as we're going into this, how should the voters prepare themselves in obtaining, you know, the necessary information they need to make an informed decision? I think one good piece of news is there was a recent study, it may have been by Pew, I don't remember, that asked Americans what they think, it, what's their biggest concern heading into this election in terms of voting? And they gave them four or five issues. They gave them voter suppression. Mm-hmm. They gave them foreign interference. Mm-hmm. The number one concern of Americans, I think 35% of Americans, who was the top of the list, rated misinformation wow. as their greatest concern. That's a step forward. The recognition Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of misinformation out there is a step forward. Now, recognizing and sorting through what's misinformation uh, is another story. But even that idea that most Americans now are aware that there's an issue, I think that's some progress. And um, that 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 is um, kind of fascinating that that would end up on the top of the list. And, um, and you know, as we go into this um, this thing, well, I I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And I want to also thank you for this noble mission that you have embarked on. It's very meaningful work, and I, as a, a former journalist, really appreciate what you're doing out there and what the teachers and the parents and everyone is doing because it is happening fast. This information is coming at us these are these are fastballs we're dealing with so um i think what you're doing is, is a very good thank you sir thank you for thank joining you us. jerry just one last thing in yeah. conclusion we have a course it's free it's online for anybody Excellent. who wants to take it it's on a platform called coursera anybody want to basically google center for news literacy one word center for news literacy.org they can find access to this course they can take it there's no cost it might be helpful that is awesome. Thank you for saying that. And then and that gives everybody a, a direct access to doing what you're telling them to do. Uh, we want to thank our executive producer, Mike Bugat, for all his work in getting this going. Our technical producer and sound wizard, Mr. Brad Navy, who worked a little harder this week than I he needed to. Um, and I'm Jerry Shields. Uh, if you get a chance, check out my new book on Amazon. It is called The Front Row. My Jagged Journey, Recording American History from Reagan to Trump. I think you enjoyed that read. Um, We will be back next week on Sunday with another edition of Retail Politics. Until then, always remember, read beyond the headlines. Thanks a lot.